This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and managing editor of the Business of Government magazine. Today's most effective government leaders can spark the imagination to look beyond the day-to-day urgencies and reflect on the serious problems and critical challenges they face today into tomorrow. Leaders are responsible for envisioning, shaping, and safeguarding the future, creating clarity amongst uncertainty, This is no small feat, and it has made increasingly difficult in the 21st century, where rapid, unforeseen change seems to be the only constant. This calls for specific abilities and conceptual tools that foster the practice of foresight, visioning, partnering, and motivating, what Dr. Michael Maccabee refers to as strategic intelligence. What is strategic intelligence? What does it mean to be a strategic, operational, or networking leader? How do you employ smart motivation? And what is the relationship between personality and leadership? I will explore these questions and so much more with Dr. Michael Maccabee, author of Strategic Intelligence, Conceptual Tools for Leading Change. Michael, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you. So, Michael, what is strategic intelligence and what are the core elements of strategic intelligence? And could you briefly describe each of those qualities? Strategic intelligence is a, first of all, let me say it's a system. Mm -hmm. So in other words, each part of strategic intelligence uh, interacts with other parts. So you can't really take them apart. Second of all, let me say it is a quality that may not be in a single individual, but in a team. Now, it includes, first of all, foresight. Uh, any strategy has to start out, what, is, what are the threats? What are the opportunities? What's coming in the future? And that has to be very clear at the top of any organization. But that has to go, be transformed into a vision of taking advantage of the threats and opportunities. So from foresight, you get visioning. But to realize the vision, to execute the vision, nobody can do it themselves. So you have to have partnering. You have to have the ability to partner with other people who complement your abilities. And it may be with customers. It may be with suppliers. Because all of that may be essential to realize that vision. But then, once you have that, you've got to be able to motivate and engage your organization to realize that. 
And then once you're in motion, you have to be able to keep learning. And that gets back to foresight. Now, to make this work, strategic intelligence also requires that a person have a clear leadership philosophy. Because otherwise, you're not going to be able to engage and motivate people. We'll see that more as we go on. Uh, you need to have a clear sense of a philosophy that includes your purpose. What are the practical values essential to achieve that purpose? What are, what are the basis of, of your ethical and moral decision-making? And finally, what are, you, what are you measuring? Are your measurements really reinforcing your, your purpose and your values? Furthermore, you need to have what uh, W. Edwards Deming called profound knowledge. Mm -hmm. And that includes understanding variation. That's not just statistics, but understanding the difference between causes that are based on the system, common causes, and special causes. You need systems thinking, which is crucial, because no vision today in any organization is going to really work without an understanding that you're trying to create a system where all the parts are interacting in order to further the purpose of that system. Third, you need to understand psychology mm -hmm. and particularly personality. Otherwise, you're not going to partner very well. And as you see, you're not going to be able to understand what motivates and engages people, what brings out their intrinsic motivation. And finally, you need to understand how you create new knowledge. Mm -hmm. Because any organization today to be sustainable has to be able to continually innovate, continually improve, and that involves understanding the processes of creating knowledge. So as a follow-up, Michael, how can such a conceptual system as strategic intelligence prepare leaders to create an effective change process? First of all, one of the things I point out in the book is that today business schools and courses are, are trying to teach people roadmaps for change. Mm -hmm. First you do this and then you do that and so on. But in all my experience working with change, and I've, I've worked with change in many organizations, I've led change, none of them are the same. There's no roadmap. But these qualities help you create a roadmap for yourself. I mean, understanding how to take visioning into what Russell Acoff, another uh, a great thinker that I learned a tremendous amount from. Russ had a way of looking at change, of creating an idealized future. In other words, starting out, where are we now from a system's point of view? And what are our results? What are the results we would like to have? What would an organization today look like that would create those results from a system's point of view. And we work that out. We architect an idealized design of the system. That's the vision. You know, many organizations think vision is saying we're going to be number one here and so on. That's baloney. It's worthless. Mm -hmm. Jack Welch did that at GE. 
He said, our vision is to be one or two in your market. So you know what his managers did? They just narrowed the market so they were one or two. It's ridiculous. So you have this vision, and then you start looking at steps to go from where you are to that idealized future. Now, in the process, you're going to be learning. You're going to be changing that view. Things will be happening. But you at least have, you have created your roadmap. You have created your sense of where you're going. And uh, I've done this with many organizations, and it's, it's very motivating because many people in organizations don't think they can change. They're really kind of, <laughs> they get kind of cynical. They get kind of passive. This is bureaucracy. This is the way it always is. Given your, uh, your background and your experiences, uh, what advice, how do you flip that both from an individual perspective and an organizational perspective? How can you regain the powerful motivation that comes from visioning? I immediately think of two examples of organizations where I was involved in the transformation. Mm -hmm. One was the MITRE Corporation. Now, the MITRE Corporation was created in order to uh, have high-level technical people work in the government, get out of the salary range of the GS. MITRE stands for MIT Research. Started out with the Strategic Air Command and the FAA doing systems analysis. Well, when I was brought in, I was brought in originally by the person who was running the uh, Center for Aviation Systems Development, who was having a problem getting his organization to understand the kind of transformation he wanted to create. He wanted to change traffic management to capacity management for the airlines. Mm -hmm. That's a systems change Mm -hmm. because... You're not looking just at traffic. You're looking at capacity. You have to look at when planes take off and land and what are the incentives and how do you get the airlines to work together, et cetera, et cetera. His people didn't know what he was talking about. And he brought me in to help. He had read a book I had written at the time. So I came and he had all his managers there. I said to these managers, well, what do you think of Jack's vision? dead silence. What vision? He said, well, I told you this. I've told you this last week. I said, Jack, tell them again. Mm -hmm. So he tells them again. And I said, well, what do you think of it? Silence. Somebody raised his hand. Jack, does that mean I should stop working on the project I'm on now? In other words, the first question everyone asks, how does that change what I do? The only way you change an organization like that is to get the customer to demand it. One thing I I loved about the book, uh, Michael, was aside from understanding what strategic intelligence is, a key way that you convey the conceptual system is through your intellectual journey. And I'd like for you to share, who has influenced your intellectual and life work and your journey most and why? Well, you know, I've had a lot of teachers and mentors. And, uh, you know, I've learned something about teachers and mentors. Um, It's a mutual process. Well, I've had that relationship with a number. uh, Really starting in in college with uh, Jerome Bruner, who's a brilliant cognitive psychologist, 
who taught me to do cognitive research on thinking and looking at motivation from the point of view of both personality mm -hmm. and incentive systems, mm -hmm. which, by the way, was a kind of basis for work I've done later. Then uh, I got to work with David Reisman, great sociologist. Mm -hmm. With him, I was teaching in his course in the University of Chicago. It was a kind of basic social science course, but there I learned all the basis of social science about work. And I also learned the beginnings of psychoanalysis. Uh, and I began to see how important work is to human development. Mm -hmm. Freud was once asked, how do you define health? He said, Leben und Arbeiten, mm -hmm. love and work. Mm -hmm. And you can also say, love in your work. Mm -hmm. Studies have shown that time and time again. So I got really interested. If we're talking about human development, the economists just think it's more money, more things. But I don't agree. I think it's love and work. Mm -hmm. And I could see that a lot of the work people were doing on assembly lines and so on were mind-destroying, were making people angry, even having political impact. Mm -hmm. Well, I had the opportunity when I got my Ph.D., combining anthropo cultural anthropology and psychology. I had the opportunity to go to Mexico. I had a fellowship from the National Institute of Mental Health to do both training and research with Eric Fromm, great psychoanalyst, who, is, who had started an institute of psychoanalysis in Mexico. And he had started a study of a peasant village from the point of view of how can you see the interaction between personality, productivity, psychopathology, alcoholism, violence, mm -hmm. and development. But he needed someone to help him who knew statistics and psychological testing, and I had all of that. What I learned from Fromm in that whole study was the importance of a concept called social character. What we learned was that every society shapes the personality of people in that society to want to do what they need to do to succeed within that economic, social, and political system. And so uh, the peasants who succeeded, who were productive, had a typical personality, which is true of peasants throughout the world, mm -hmm. independent, family-focused, hardworking, religious, suspicious of people outside the system, fatalistic in terms of the weather mm -hmm. and what could happen to their crops and so on, and also cooperative. They didn't like leadership. Leaders were people who exploit you. Mm -hmm. They were independent. And the people who didn't succeed were people who were still had the personality that had been shaped in the hacienda system, which was a semi-slavery in Mexico before the revolution. And they had been brought up to be passive, accepting, and they tended once they were given land by the government after the revolution, they sold it, they drank the profits, 
They tended to be macho to hide their dependency, and there was a lot, a lot of violence came from drinking and threats to your manliness, and and the women became very hard-hearted, and and there was a kind of war between the sexes and so on. So I really um, began to understand personality, both individual through my psychoanalytic work and social character, how important it is. And I came back to the United States with a fellowship at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences. I, I was interested to see, I now have been studying some of the most powerless people in the world. But who's changing the world? It's the people creating the technology. I had the sense that they were going to transform the world. I don't know how, but I had that feeling. And I was able to uh, get a uh, very innovative uh, vice president of Hewlett-Packard to invite me in. Then I got a grant from Harvard that was set up by IBM oh, really? <laughs> uh, to study technology and society. And they gave me a grant to study technology, work, and character. And I was able to study people in about 10 of the major technology companies, Intel, Texas Instruments, IBM, uh, DuPont, Schlumberger, Xerox. And to make a long story short, then I found a uh, very creative, visionary CEO, Sidney Harmon. And he heard me speak on this, and he had a factory that was a UAW factory. And I felt if I could show that it was possible mm -hmm. to transform work in a way that the workers would feel more engaged and also would be more productive, that this would be a big deal and have a big effect. And it did. What we did in a little factory in Tennessee was taken over by Ford and GM. And then uh, I met the vice president of HR from Volvo mm -hmm. at a meeting, and he invited me to Sweden to help them do this. And then other companies invited me in. Then the Swedes asked me to study their leadership and look at what the future of leadership was. One of the companies that hired me, the CEO, uh, Jorn Kohler, of the largest bank in Sweden, Swedbank, asked me to teach his vice presidents to understand strategy. I said, I have no, how can I teach that? I don't know that. <laughs> so I tried, I tried to get them to think strategically at a meeting, mm -hmm. but they were always thinking operationally. Okay. When they were given a challenge, what should we do in this new environment? The answer was always cut costs, be more productive. So I sat down with Yaron. I said, I'm going to interview you and see how you think, because you're a great strategist. He had foreseen the bubble in Sweden before anyone else. He had transformed the whole savings bank system into one big savings bank. And so I interviewed him, and what came out was the beginnings of strategic intelligence. That's fascinating. What was lacking was understanding systems thinking. And I got to know Russell Acuff, who was at the Wharton School, but a tremendous thinker of systems understanding. He was also a consultant of Volvo. And I started to learn from him. And he invited me to work with him in the transformation of Canadian Pacific. Yes. Meanwhile, 
AT&T had asked, was still a monopoly. And the union and the company asked me together if I could take these ideas and transform the Bell system. And we worked for many years, created tremendous results. So just one thing led to the other. And what you see in this book is really the results of all that. Then in 1990, Claire Crawford Mason, who had been a producer at NBC, who had done the program that introduced W. Edwards Deming to America, Japan can, why can't we, came to see me. She said, Dr. Deming is looking for someone to talk to about leadership and motivation, and he liked your recent book, Why Work? Would you be willing to come and have dinner and talk to him? That started three years of periodic dinners and discussions where I learned about profound knowledge from Deming. Well, he was taking notes from me about leadership and motivation. So all of that is what's brought together within strategic intelligence. Because of that narrative, because of that journey, it to me it makes the read of your book just so much more inviting um, because it, it shows the evolution of your thought and the number of uh, players that have been involved in the gestation of strategic intelligence. But you mentioned something, Michael, before about operational versus strategic. And I'd like to shift gears a little bit. You identify three different types of leaders in your book. When I began, I wrote my book, The Leader. Nobody was talking about leadership. The reason leadership has become so important is change. Mm -hmm. You can't have change without leaders. Once, when you had kind of bureaucracies that were stable, not changing, you didn't need leaders. You had managers. You had people keeping the, the ship on its course. So what is a leader? Well, most of these definitions really don't hold. Uh, Warren Bennis, who was a friend of mine, a very famous leadership guru, said a leader is someone with a vision who's able to realize it. But as I think about it, that's true of a gardener or a good carpenter. So I came to the point to say, really, the only definition of a leader that makes sense to me is a leader with somebody with followers. Because if you have followers, you're a leader. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, I don't care if you're president. You're not a leader. So the really interesting question is, why and how do people follow the leader? Mm -hmm. Because leadership is a relationship. You can, as a manager, you're, you're in charge of processes, hiring, evaluating, budgeting, that can be given to a team. I've worked with organizations where the teams do all the management, and that's happening more and more. But a leader can't give away his or her relationship. And leadership always has to do with the context. You can be a leader in one context but not another. So uh, let's start out. Leadership is a relationship in a context. Mm -hmm. Now, in large organizations, you also need three different kinds of leaders because they are different contexts. One is a a, a strategic leader. Mm -hmm. These are the people, the Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk's, Steve Jobs, these are the people, the visionaries. 
and they're often rather narcissistic and and grandiose and they're not easy to work with and tend to put people down. Not all of them, but there are some who, who are not that way. I worked with, uh, my first in my first study of Hewlett Packard, I interviewed Bill Hewlett and Dave Packard. Mm -hmm. They were not that way mm -hmm. at all. Very different. But they were not that kind of visionary. Second of all, you need operational leaders. Those are the ones who take that vision and look for the processes, get people working together, continuous improvement, making thing happen. As a matter of fact, Steve Jobs was a failure until he understood he needed Tim Cook, who was a great operational leader, brought in all the processes of the manufacturing, new materials, et cetera, that have been crucial for Apple's success. Third kind of leader is a network leader. See, more and more, if we're going to go back to what we were saying about products wrapped in solutions, who's going to bring together the people who are the consultants, the hardware, the software, etc.? You need somebody, preferably, who has no hierarchical role at all, but has a personality to create trust, create collaboration. Uh, I point out in the book, one of the companies I worked with for a while was Ford. Mm -hmm. Ford had been in trouble until they created the Taurus. But the Taurus never would have been created without Lou Veraldi, who was a network manager. In the past, you had the designers would design something, then it would go to the, to the design engineers, product engineers. They'd throw it back to the designers. It's too costly. Then they go to the production engineers. We can't produce it this way. You've got to change it back and forth for years. Veraldi got them all together and the cut the time of production and the quality became tremendous. Now, that, that's how organizations all over need that kind of leadership. Mayo Clinic, which I've studied, which is as good a healthcare organization as any in the world, not better, has physicians who bring together, if you have a complex problem and go to the Mayo Clinic, mm -hmm. a network leader brings together different specialists to work collaboratively on your problem. How do you transform a bureaucratic organization into a collaborative learning one? We will explore this question and so much more on our special edition of the Business of Government Hour, A Conversation with Authors Returns. How can DOD improve its acquisition processes? Check out the latest IBM Center report, Eight Actions to Improve Defense Acquisition. The authors emphasize the urgency of acquisition reform in DOD, given budgetary constraints and security challenges, finding that DOD will need to gain every possible efficiency while resisting the temptation to buy defense on the cheap. This report continues the IBM Center's interest in better understanding and improving the federal government acquisition process. Download your free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors, exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness, with Dr. Michael McAbee, author of Strategic Intelligence, Conceptual Tools for Leading Change. I want to ask you about what factors contribute 
to the impetus for transforming bureaucratic organizations into collaborative learning organizations? And what are some of the challenges in becoming a learning organization? Well, you know, again, it's the same point. You've got to start with a relationship to the patient. If we look at, at the whole healthcare tradition, doctors started out as craftsmen, and they were they had their guilds, and the leader was kind of the ombudsman mm-hmm. for the craftsmen. Then we get the begin insurance and cost cutting and hospitals and healthcare organizations become bureaucracies, which is really very frustrating for physicians. They're more and more put in the position of having to uh, see a patient for 15 minutes, more patients, and et cetera. They, and and it, the whole concept is still providing care. Mm-hmm. It's not working with with a patient and the patient's family to create health. Healthcare is sickness care, giving, it's like fixing Mm -hmm. a machine. And that's not creating health. And to create health, it's just like teaching. Mm -hmm. Teaching, a good teacher is not putting knowledge into you. Good teacher is motivating you to learn. A good physician is motivating you to be healthy and helping do that. So it's a partnership. But to do that, you need the whole organization focused that way rather than paying just for a visit. You need to create a relationship and a different form of payment, which is beginning. Kaiser Permanente started working that, that way. We're beginning to see some of that coming out of Medicare mm-hmm. with, a, with the uh, accountable care organizations that are being created. So you're transforming a bureaucracy. And furthermore, you need to have an organization where people share learnings mm-hmm. with their patients. Intermountain Healthcare, another great organization, Salt Lake City, has helped create a consortium of Mayo Clinic, uh, Cleveland Clinic, um, UCLA Healthcare that share knowledge and create help create pathways to deal with certain problems and continually learn and develop. Cut the time for operations and make them safer, et cetera, et cetera. Well, Michael, what are some of the principles? Maybe you could describe some of the principles you've learned about Well, the change. principles, one, you've got to start with... The customer, the patient, mm-hmm. not the product. And, and this transcends healthcare, right? I mean, yeah. this could be any type of bureaucratic. Any kind. Okay, okay. I mean, you know, the the manufacturing mode of production of the past starts with the product. Mm-hmm. I create a product and then I try to sell it. Learning organization starts with the customer. What do you need? Yeah. What's your problem? How can we help together, work together to solve it? to improve the quality of your life, make you happier. Then you've got to look at how do you create a system where all the parts are interactively working to do that and to keep learning from experience. And learning how to partner with other groups that can help. 
an example in the book Transforming Healthcare Leadership. There's a wonderful example of uh, from Sweden of the healthcare organization of Jon Chirping, mm-hmm. which is a whole community healthcare organization, which is really a model because it's not only taking the learning from patients to improve care, it's helping to improve the health of the whole community. Well, I'd like to talk more about systems thinking. Uh, you do a wonderful job in the book distilling the principles and purpose of systems thinking. How can you use it to design and idealize a future organization? And what is the relationship between systems thinking and visioning? And and again, how is analytic and systems thinking different? Well, that's a you know that's a big question and a crucial question. We've done re- my colleagues and I have done research on strategic intelligence, and we find the biggest weakness of leaders running organizations is systems thinking. Mm -hmm. People are taught to look at problems and stack up their solutions and try to put them together. For example, uh, when uh, HP merged with Compaq, they said, let's take the best organizations from each company and put them together. It was disaster. It's like saying, let's get the best uh, parts of automobiles from every company and put it together to make a great automobile. You have junk. A system is a collection of elements with a purpose. And none of those elements can be evaluated by itself but only in terms of how well it interacts with the other elements to further the purpose of the system. There are three kinds of systems. Mechanical system, like a car, where you can design the parts. Organic system, like the human body, where the parts are genetically designed to serve the purpose of life. And a social or a socio-technical system, like a company, where... Many of the key parts are people, and people have their own purposes. Mm -hmm. Therefore, leadership is essential to create a common purpose. That is why a philosophy is so important. People have to feel that that purpose is worth their energy and passion. So uh, what can you tell us about... um the five P's to design. The five P's start with purpose of the organization, practical values essential to create it, the people, and that includes uh, their roles and and uh, relationships and uh, processes that are essential to make it work together, um, and then the products, mm-hmm. and all of these have to be integrated and working interactively. So it's a way of just thinking about how do you envision, how do you design the ideal future of your organization. So how does that transition to Akoff's um, view or his contrasting between interactive planning and conventional planning? Yeah, well, conventional planning, uh, somebody at the top of the organization 
uh, plans. You know, when I first started to work with companies like IBM and uh, AT&T, they were monopolies. So planning really was uh, just looking at the demographics and and just it really it was really extrapolating from the present to what we're going to need in the future. Can't do that anymore. So you're you're looking now at real strategy. You're looking really at understanding different customer needs. You're looking at innovation, mm-hmm. not just the same thing. And uh, so you have to. The top is going to create the vision of this ideal future, but it has to be interactively worked out through or, throughout the organization. So I get people at every level to look at this design. How are you going to, how is it going to change what you do, what you need to do? What do you need from the top? Maybe you have to go back to those visionaries. They've got to change something to make it work for you. So it's a back and forth process. And People get really engaged in that. I mean, they're, they're part of creating the future. What is the relationship between personality and leadership? We will explore this question and so much more when our special edition of the Business of Government Hour, A Conversation with Authors, returns. Government leaders and managers face major challenges today, including fiscal austerity, citizen expectation, the pace of technology and innovation, and a new role for governance. These challenges influence how government executives lead today, but more importantly, how they can be prepared for tomorrow. The IBM Center report, Six Trends Driving Change in Government, offers a path forward for government executives responding to the ever-increasing complexity and challenges they face today. Download your free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors, exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with Dr. Michael McAbee, author of Strategic Intelligence, Conceptual Tools for Leading Change. So I'd like to get your understanding about the relationship between personality and leadership. So maybe this is the from the Eric Fromm part of your well, journey. Well, we have to look at, we have to look at, all of the elements that go into personality. That's not simple. We have to look at what people are born with, everyone. And those are certain drives which are shaped into your personality. And they're drives for mastery. They're drives for security, relationships, dignity, meaning. Now... Part of that is shaped into element of personality that you share with others that are brought up in the same culture. But part of it is unique, which has to do with, with unique elements in, in you combining your genetic mm-hmm. and family background. And part of it has to do with your, the identity you create for yourself, which integrates all this. Because a developed personality has a philosophy and an identity that you create. And a lot of people, psychologists, forget this. They think it's all like a machine. But all of us have the challenge of 
deciding what do we stand for, who are we, what do we believe, what can we be expected to do. Now, their identities, some people have kind of tribal identities. It's enough to say I'm of this race or this country or this region or, or I'm my identity is I work for this company or my identity is um, my profession. I'm a doctor, lawyer, et cetera, et cetera. But people who are fully developed, their identity has to do with what, what do I stand for? What am I trying to create in the world? What, am I, what really motivates my intrinsic motivation? What really engages me? Could be uh, helping people. Could be uh, changing the world for the better. Could be, in other words, it's, we have a challenge to develop. Now, if we look at the types of leaders, though, there tend to be certain kind of typical personality differences. As I pointed out, a lot of visionaries have a narcissistic personality. Why? Because as children, they didn't identify with the older generation. They really um, wanted to create their own vision, their own sense of meaning. So they're really driven to change the world in a sense that they think. So Steve Jobs wanted to change the way we all work. I mean, that's a very different thing from being a success or rising up the hierarchy. The operational leaders tend to have more, be more of exacting, obsessive types. They, they really, their intrinsic motivation, they like to make things perfect. They like to solve problems. They like to uh, get people working on continuous improvement, etc. And then the, uh, if we look at the network leaders, they tend to be more people-focused, more people with emotional intelligence, mm -hmm. create much more of a sense of trust, or they can be much more of an interactive personality, which is being developed. The, the social character in our society is shifting yes. from a bureaucratic social character to an interactive social character. And that has to do with a lot of factors. First of all, the change in family structure, crucial. People in the bureaucratic age and the middle class were brought up in families where the father was a single wage earner, the mother was home. Women had the model of being good family creators, men of rising up the bureaucratic hierarchy or, or being entrepreneurs with a tremendous revolution in the role of women, this has been transformed. And so kids grow up seeing both parents as representing the world of work, authority, but their parents are often not around anymore. Mm -hmm. And they're more and more uh, socialized by the peer group, by other kids. They have to learn to be interactive and so on. And the technology comes along that facilitates this constant interaction of uh, social technology. So they learn to really get along with people, to create teams 
but also not to be tied. They're, they're less loyal. They're much more fluid. So they can often be good um, network leaders because they enjoy creating networks. They like to make work fun. Uh, they like to have new ideas, but they're not attached. So, Michael, you mentioned uh, social character. How does bureaucratic social character differ from interactive social character? And what are some of the drawbacks to interactive social character? And are there any positive elements to the so-called bureaucratic social character? You know, the bureaucratic social character is much more loyal, mm -hmm. um, much more concerned with moral standards, excellence at its best. Is looking at it, the excellence of the product or service, while the interactive is looking at the value creation. Okay. What's the customer want, what they need? It's not looking at creating the right, it, the product may even be not perfect, but you keep learning and developing. So that's very different, different focus there. But they're both important. They are, okay. Furthermore, in companies, I was working with a big pharmaceutical company, and the more bureaucratic people had developed long-term relationships with customers in hospitals and so on, and they recognized they needed the interactive people to create new products and new ideas and so on, but those people needed to learn from the bureaucratic people what the relationships, real relationships were, and how, what, the, what the structure was. You've talked about intrinsic motivation before, and I want to switch gears to understand your term smart motivation. Would you tell us a little bit about that, and how can leaders employ smart motivation? Well, I got to that looking at the difference between the people who were advocating what I called hard motivation, mm -hmm. carrots and sticks, incentives. And these things don't really motivate uh, any kind of professional people, any kind of knowledge worker. Mm -hmm. they, may motiv they motivate people who are doing work they hate on an assembly line. Or they may motivate people on Wall Street who are only interested in money. But they don't motivate a doctor. They don't motivate you or me. Mm -hmm. And then there's the soft motivators. They, they think being uh, caring, uh, being interested in people, giving them more autonomy, all these things are going to motivate. But the research shows it doesn't. It actually may even be negative because... If I think you're so caring and so on, I can get away with anything. So smart motivation is based on understanding what motivates intrinsically you and employing the tools of what I call the five R's. Mm -hmm. First, reasons, and that come, goes back to philosophy, purpose. Um, it's interesting how powerful that is. You take somebody on the assembly line who is only motivated by money. During the war, 
World War II, people who are on the assembly line making tanks were extremely motivated <laughs> because of the reason. They were helping to win the war. So first is reasons, which are crucial for people. Why are we doing this? Second, responsibilities. What's my role? Does it really engage both my abilities and my values? So, I mean, teachers are motivated by teaching. Doctors are motivated by caring. Engineers are motivated by problem solving. Interesting problems. So responsibilities are number two. Third is uh, recognition. We're all, we all want to be recognized by what we do that contributes. The one thing that turns people off is when the boss takes credit for what you've done. So we need more and more to recognize people feel that they are appreciated. Fourth, rewards. Rewards are important, particularly um, if we feel they're unfair, we're going to be turned off. But rewards don't have to be just money. Rewards can be learning new things, being able to uh, visit, go to meetings. There are all kinds of possible rewards that really connected in some ways with recognition. And uh, finally, and very, very important, relationships, mm -hmm. crucial. The major reason talented people leave organizations is they don't like their boss. Mm. All the studies show that. But good relationships can be not only with the boss but, and, and subordinates, but with colleagues, with customers, relationships. And I ask people constantly in the teaching I do and organizations, take these five R's and rank order them. Yeah. For yourself. Mm -hmm. How about you? Mm -hmm. well, take, think about the five R's. Yeah. Which is the most important for you, engaging you? How can strategic intelligence be deployed and employed? We will explore this question and so much more when our special edition of the Business of Government Hour, A Conversation with Authors, returns. In a world inundated with all kinds of information, timely, relevant, and more predictive data can drive better decision-making. Law enforcement agencies are at the forefront in leveraging data and using innovative software to generate predictions that help police prevent crime. What is predictive policing? How can using analytics make us safer? Check out the IBM Center report, Predictive Policing, Preventing Crime with Data and Analytics by Jen Bachner, and find out. Download your free copy at businessofgovernment.org. What do agency leaders need to know about the federal acquisition process? What are some of the key federal procurement trends? And how can agency leaders overcome today's acquisition challenges? Check out the new Center Report, A Guide for Agency Leaders on Federal Acquisition by Trevor Brown and find out. The report offers practical recommendations for improving federal acquisition. Download your free copy of A Guide for Agency Leaders on Federal Acquisition at businessofgovernment.org and find out how the business of government is not business as usual. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors, exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness, with Dr. Michael Maccabee, author of Strategic Intelligence, Conceptual Tools for Leading Change. 
Michael, I, I, I want to talk about, before we end the conversation, about how can, how can strategic intelligence be developed and employed? Well, I've worked – I have a colleague, uh, Tim Scudder, who uh, runs a company that does – develops core strength technology and so on. And he and I have worked out a workshop and we've been – had real effectiveness both working with government leaders and business leaders in developing strategic intelligence. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a three-day workshop. But one company we worked with, it's uh, – we've taken it down the whole organization. So it's been a two-year process. Wow. But it really changes um, people's thinking. I've done it with, with other companies who are in change. One company I was working with um, had – about a thousand different locations that were um, profit centers, and they brought in a new uh, SAP type technology, which um, transforms the whole system, changes the relation with the customer, so that the customer can directly order things that go there. They don't have to go through other people, and so on. But by understanding strategic intelligence, it really helped them to see how to design an idealized future and, mo and clarify their philosophy and values so that everybody was on the same page working together. Mm -hmm. So uh, we can switch gears. What's, what's next in this area uh, and what does the future hold? Well, I think what's next – uh, we've got a, uh, you know, as one of your colleagues, John Kamensky said, this is a Ros Rosetta Stone for leadership. It really is, yeah. yeah. So I think, I mean, I would hope people would take it and begin to work with it. Mm -hmm. I know I'm definitely taking it. I've inculcated most of your insights. Because I think it answers a lot of the problems of leadership training, which is often disconnected to the realities of an organization, looks at it as though there's only one kind of leadership, doesn't understand the people that are the followers, doesn't bring in the under importance of philosophy. So I, as one, um, one professor wrote on Amazon, as a matter of fact, about, about the book, yeah. and she, she said... Uh, this book has, has been tremendous for me teaching uh, because it integrates so many of the different elements that have to do with organization, leadership, personality. If there's one word that I take away from your, your, your work in this book, and it's not just strategic intelligence, the title, it's integration. I mean, everything seems to make sense. But you you don't it's it's the extension of systems theory and systems thinking. You can't parse it and then pull it together and think it's going to be the same. And so integration and and it, in your conversation around personality and leadership, the integrated personality, it's very powerful 
uh, and I think very, very different than more traditional type. I wouldn't say traditional. That's an offense to tradition. But your typical leadership uh, book that I've read. I mean, this is a very integrated approach. Well, you know, one, di one difference, uh, I mean, the big difference is think about the learning journey I've had. Yeah. I mean, most of the people who write these things, they give give a seminar to a company or they come in and um, do surveys or so on. I've worked, I worked with, with uh, uh, AT&T for 20 years. I worked with Volvo for 15 years. I worked with the Swede Bank for 15 years. I've, I worked with the State Department for 15 years. I've worked with the Energy Department for a few years. In other words, it's not just based on theory. Mm -hmm. Theory is crucial. As Deming said, without theory, you're just tampering mm -hmm. with the system. And that's very important because many, m much of the work that's done has no theory. Hey, your book is a wonderful intersection between theory and practice. I want to thank you for joining me today. This is well, a great I, conversation. I th thoroughly enjoyed the book. Well, let me thank you for reading the book so 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 well and understanding it so well. It's a that. real it's a real treat to have an interview with somebody who really fully deeply understands what you've written. And it's an honor that you came on and gave us an hour of your time. I appreciate it. Thank you, Michael. This has been a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors, exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with Dr. Michael Maccabee, author of Strategic Intelligence, Conceptual Tools for Leading Change. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. From forging a unity of effort in homeland security to strategizing today how to field the U.S. Army of tomorrow, to pursuing affordable housing, eliminating fraud, waste and abuse in health care, and securing cyberspace. This issue of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Join Michael Keegan as he presents the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and thought leaders merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m.